This morning, yes, we are in the book of Exodus, and I will warn you, I may not have much of a voice, but I am on fire this morning. We've just completed an hour of Sunday school where the young adult group and I pondered the importance of the Word of God. And for an hour, we saw the Scriptures elevate their own importance. God magnified His Word. And I can hardly think of anything better to prepare me for this time and the Word together with you than to go spend an hour talking about the incredible value of the Word of God. So I am thrilled to be here this morning. I'm excited to be kicking off this 11-week series in the book of Exodus. And Lord willing, we're going to cover the first 18 chapters between now and Christmas. And my family and I have actually been in Exodus for at least the past month or so in our own family devotions, and I've been studying it a few weeks before that. But the more that my family and I work our way through the book of Exodus and see these jaw-dropping accounts of how God deals with the people of Israel and Egypt, with Moses and Pharaoh, etc., the more I look forward to spending these Sunday mornings together. God has been educating my faith through this book. He has been strengthening me and showing me the right way to live, and I fully anticipate that He'll do the same for our church family. Now, I will admit the fact that this account, this is the account of Israel's wandering in the wilderness, and the fact that we will soon be a people without a church home did have something to do with us being in the book of Exodus right now. Now, of course, that's what I said over a year and a half ago when we started the book of Nehemiah. But uh, I do sense that we are getting closer to moving out of here and building these new walls. So building or no building, though, the book of Exodus is a treasure trove of biblical wisdom and real-life lessons for us. You know this. I have no doubt that many of you would agree with me when I say that the more I study Old Testament scriptures written thousands of years ago by men under the inspiration of none other than God himself, the more I study the Old Testament, the more I'm amazed at their relevance for today, their relevance to the life that I am living and my family and my country and our church family. And today we're going to dive into this book and we're going to come face to face with our first lesson, which will be on the fear of the Lord. Matter of fact, as I've studied my way through a number of chapters in this book and have prayerfully charted our course from now at least till Thanksgiving, it strikes me that this whole book is about the reverential, submissive, awesome fear of God. I ask you this morning... What is the fear of the Lord? Or to more properly put it, what does the Bible say is the fear of the Lord? Friends, you understand that there's a big difference between those two questions. As we study these scriptures and as we go through life, let us never forget that what you and I think is of little relevance and value. The mind of the Lord is what matters, and we find that mind through the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures. You know this. And so we kick off today's study with the question, what is the fear of the Lord? 
And how does the Scripture define it? How will the book of Exodus reveal it to us? Most of us here are familiar with verses like the one that Enrico mentioned. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Chapter 1, verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. What about the end of Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon, the wisest man to ever walk the earth? Chapter 12, verses 13 says, The conclusion when all has been heard is, Fear God and keep His commandments. Allow me to interject. I don't really care what CNN and Fox News and all the other news stations are telling you and me right now. After all has been heard, you know what the conclusion of the matter is? Fear God and keep His commandments. What we've witnessed the past couple of weeks should drive every Christian to a greater fear of the Lord and a greater recognition of the importance of keeping His commandments. We also have the book of Job, the oldest book of the Bible, about one of the most righteous men to ever walk the earth. And chapter 28, verse 28 says, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And Moses, having, been, having gone back up Mount Sinai for the second time to receive the second set of Ten Commandments, thereafter urged God's people in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God and to walk in all His ways and love Him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the Lord's commandments and His statutes which I am commanding you today for your good. Simply put, we would do well to understand what it means to fear God so that we can do it. God requires it of us. You have a salt starter in your bulletins this morning. You can be thinking on the questions in that discussion starter. Those went out to all the salt groups this past Tuesday so that everyone could be thinking and reading and praying ahead. If you haven't joined your salt group on the community, you can do that anytime, and you'll get these Sunday notes in advance as well. So Lord willing, I'll get those out in advance each week. Now, you won't necessarily see the questions that are on that starter in the sermon notes today. Those aren't sermon notes. They're for application. They're for discussion, and they're for your own quiet time as you consider what we study this morning. Now, before we dive into this lesson on the fear of the Lord, let's step back and get our bearings on this book as a whole, the book of Exodus this is, as you know, the second book in the Bible. It's, it's part of a collection of books called the what? It starts with T. The Torah or the Pentateuch, referring to five, the five books or the, the five volumes, which include Genesis through Deuteronomy. If you read the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, you'll realize that Exodus is indeed picking up right where Genesis left off with the death of Joseph. That is another study that we should do sometime soon. The life of Joseph, you're probably familiar with him, is the boy with the coat of many colors who is loved dearly by his father and hated viciously by his brothers. 
He was nearly murdered by them, but instead he was sold into slavery. He ended up in Egypt in Potiphar's service. Potiphar was a military leader. Joseph was falsely accused of rape by Potiphar's wife and ended up in prison. But then he interpreted a couple dreams, including one by Pharaoh, head of Egypt, and this eventually led to his, Joseph's release from prison, and he was put second in command over all of Egypt for the care of the nation during 14 years of literal feast and famine. I'm telling you, you can't make up stories this good. I'd rather watch this than DC or Marvel any day. This is the real thing. Joseph, interestingly, was a man who feared God. His life is a recorded testimony of the sovereign hand of God working through a man who fears Him, who respects Him, who honors Him. It's a testimony of the sovereign hand of God working all things together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Joseph went through more pain than most anyone in this room can imagine, let alone experience in one lifetime. And yet he came to understand that what men mean for evil, God meant for good. In the last chapter of Genesis, Joseph dies. Then some 300 years or so passes. That's the gap between the last chapter of Genesis and the first chapter of Exodus. Exodus chapter 1, where the family of Jacob has grown significantly to an estimated 2 million people, putting us now around 1500 B.C. Here's a quick outline of the book. Exodus chapters 1 through 12 record God delivering the people of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. Chapters 13 through 18 record the Red Sea miracle and the wilderness wanderings. Chapter 19 to 40 record all that happened while Israel sat at the base of Mount Sinai, where you know God delivered the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law, including instructions for the building of the first tabernacle and how worship was supposed to take place. You know, in stunning visual form, God came down and He dwelt among the people again for the first time since the Garden of Eden. He tabernacled among them. And as you know, He led them through the rest of the wilderness as a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night. And throughout this series of major historical events, we see that that Israel, in a sense, became its own nation. And of utmost importance, as we read through the book of Exodus, is our recognition of the fact that none of this book would have happened apart from the Abrahamic covenant. God's promise to Abraham that he would make him a nation and that He would bless all the nations of the world through Him. We're going to see this in chapter 6. God is true to His Word. 
He is faithful to all His promises. That's why we have the book of Exodus. Friends, as we study this book together, let us remember that this book was written for us. It's not just a collection of amazing stories. The God of the Exodus is your God. He is my God. And the question that chapter 1 is going to quickly confront us with is this. Will we fear Him? Will we follow Him? Not just once at salvation, but every day, every choice, every decision, every blessing, every sorrow. Will we follow Him because He is the one true God? It's open to chapter 1 if you haven't already. If you don't have a Bible with you, you're welcome to follow along in one of the red Bibles under a chair near you. Again, this is the second book in the Bible. I'll also have the words on screen. But follow along as I read chapter 1. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came each one with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied. It became exceedingly mighty, so that the land was filled with them. Again, this is the 300 years that passed, and now there are a lot of them. It's kind of like the Sukos at Discovery, right? <laughs> In case you didn't know it, I'm a part of that clan too. My wife Ruth is one of Mark and Nancy's daughters, and Willie Clark is my brother-in-law. He married a Suko girl as well, Hannah. We have Nehemiah and Christy and their kids here. There's about 80 of us. <clears throat> no, not that many, not that many. But verse 8. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. If you know the Joseph story, the king that knew him was very favorable to him because he interpreted the, G the dream and saved the nation of Egypt during the 14 years of feast and famine. That king elevated him to second in command. Pharaoh said, I know nothing but the food that is placed before me. Can you imagine the miracle that God would have had to accomplish to allow a foreigner to become second in command over one of the greatest nations of the world at that time? Verse 8 says, Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply. And in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor, and they built for Pharaoh storage cities, 
Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out, so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks and at all kinds of labor in the field, and their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. We see from these few verses that this was not only becoming a major economic risk for Egypt, but a matter of survival for the Egyptian people. The people of Israel had increased so greatly that the fear was that they could overtake Egypt even if by alliance with other foreign nations who were enemies of Egypt. And Pharaoh's work-them-to-the-bone scheme clearly wasn't making Egypt great again. We come to verse 15. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other was named Pua. And he said, When you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth, and see them upon the birth stool. If it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. Folks, we cannot miss this glimpse into the nature of this new Pharaoh. This was a brutally wicked Egyptian ruler. Since the slave labor wasn't fixing the problem, the foreign population problem, he turned to infanticide, the murder of all the Israelite baby boys the moment they were born. Verse 17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. We're going to come back this morning to that powerful example. The entire account of Exodus hinged on two women who feared God. Verse 18, So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them, what we would give to be a fly on the wall, observing this conversation, that was like a slap on Pharaoh's face that he couldn't even respond to. These women are telling him, you're the one who worked these ladies so hard. Now they're strong and give birth at amazing speeds. We can't get there fast enough. (laughs) Verse 20. So God was good to the midwives. And the people multiplied and became very mighty. Because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born, you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. If you can't kill them at birth, then kill them after. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the words of truth that you give us in your holy scripture. Inspired by you and profitable for us, as 2 Timothy 3 says. 
We ask that your Holy Spirit would teach us the things we cannot learn on our own. Give us wisdom from above that we might fear you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I trust you get the big picture of what's going on in chapter 1. For the sake of time, let's go right again to verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. Stop and absorb the fact that the book of Exodus hinged on these two women and their fear of the Lord. They feared him more than the vile, murderous king. And not only was it them, but obviously all of the midwives, since surely there are more than two for the people of Israel. Verse 18. So the Egypt, king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. You got to admit, these two midwives were gutsy. The Hebrew women are not like your women. These women, in their fear of God, had confidence. Verse 20, so God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. Let's consider seven observations, seven lessons that we can readily pull from this text so we can apply these truths to our own lives. Perhaps you can discuss these in your own salt groups, if time allows, and even add to the list. Number one, God-fearing people obey God. The fear of the Lord results in obedience. This is one of the definitions. It is one of the, the aspects of the fear of the Lord. If we fear Him, we will obey Him because of who He is. This is one of those biblical truths that hurts because it's so simple. It hurts because it's so personal. The truth is, we, mankind, would rather obey ourselves. We would rather obey humans who we can see or who can benefit us or who we are afraid might hurt us. You and I will spot a God-fearing person in part by their obedience to God and His Word. Number two, God-fearing people disobey sin. This is the same truth as the prior point. It's just from the opposite angle. Scripture says it this way. And I believe it says this this way because sometimes what man asks us to do will directly contradict what we know God commands us to do. These women knew that they were being asked to do something wrong and they refused to do it knowing, think about it, knowing they would almost surely die for disobeying. 
They knew who Pharaoh was. Verse 17 says, they did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them. Proverbs 8.13 says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance in the evil way and the perverted mouth, I hate. These women hated evil. Number three, God-fearing people obey God and disobey sin regardless the cost. If it costs us our job, will you and I still obey God? If it costs you a friendship or causes others to make fun of you at school, are you still willing to do what's right, young people? If it costs a grade in college, are we still willing to do what's right? If it costs us financially, if it costs us time, if it threatens our retirement, if it causes significant suffering, are we still willing to obey God? Here's why all those questions are the wrong questions. Hebrews 11, verses 24 to 27 say, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Hebrews 13, 5-6 says, He himself has said, speaking of God, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that you can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? In your notes, will you strike out the last part of point three, regardless of the cost, and replace it with these words? Because they know the blessing, they will receive. God-fearing people obey the Lord and disobey sin because they know the blessing they will receive. As Christians, we need to know how to take accurate measurements in this life. And those measurements are not determined by the prize in the here and now. They're not measured by the job, the promotion, the house, the things, they are measured by what will come in eternity. You could look at it this way. To fear God is to not miss out on that next job promotion. It is to gain the wealth of heaven instead. Point number four. It doesn't matter how insignificant you are. You can fear the Lord. Sometimes we fall prey to the thought that only Christian leaders have great faith and great fear of the Lord. Only the pastors or the teachers or the pastor's wife or the missionaries, etc. No, these two midwives were your regular working class persons. And they feared the Lord and God used it to trigger the redemption of Israel. Two normal women.
Nobody's super important by financial or contemporary measurements. We recently studied this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the end of the chapter, verses 26 to 31. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world. And the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts Boast in the Lord. Children, if you're eight years old, or nine or ten, eleven or twelve, I want you to know that you can learn to fear and respect, to honor and to obey God. You're not too young. God requires that of you just like He does the adults. Housewives, don't underestimate what God can do through you in your home and in this church family and in this community, in this nation. And boy, does our nation need it. If you will truly fear Him. Men, don't let your humble occupation, whatever it might be, minimize the importance of you being a man of God a man who fears the Lord, a man who is known by his fear of the Almighty. This historical account would be quite different if these two midwives gave in to Pharaoh or just ran away or tried to scheme their way through the situation. How do we know that they weren't lying to Pharaoh? Because Scripture says they feared God. That's why they did what they did. They refused to obey Pharaoh. And thankfully, God had prepared the Hebrew women for such a time as this. They were vigorous. They were strong. There's no end to the lessons and the applications here if we were to even just follow this one point. God uses difficult circumstances to prepare us for bigger trials. Only God knows the future. God does write the last chapter, etc., etc., etc. Point number five, God sees when we fear Him. Have you ever suffered, especially for doing what's right, and asked God, don't you see that I was the one doing what's right? Why am I the one suffering now? Remember this answer. Yes, God sees. That's going to be the theme of one of our upcoming chapters in this book. Yes, God sees. This is the same response in truth that was echoed in the book of Habakkuk that Enrico just brought to us a couple weeks back. God, don't you see what's going on? Yes, I see was the overwhelming response that came from heaven. Let us remember that when we fear God, He takes notice. And that is no small thing that God would give His attention to us in those times.
Point number six, God blesses when we fear Him. Verse 20 is such a beautiful verse. So God was good to the midwives. Who here can say, God has never been good to me? Or God has not given me the good that I deserve? On the contrary, we should all be saying, God has been so good to me. He has given me far greater than I could ever deserve. The cross references that support this truth abound in the scriptures. I encourage you to check your Bible concordance or, or use an online concordance such like the one at openbible.info. Use a concordance and search fear of the Lord. You will find a long, long list of the benefits and blessings that come upon those who fear God. It's the beginning of knowledge and wisdom and understanding. It brings down the mercy of God. It brings down the friendship of God. It gives confidence, provides, leads to life. It satisfies, it fulfills, it brings riches and honor. It protects, it delivers, it causes life to go well for you and your descendants. Psalm 112:1. blessed is the man who fears the Lord. And the list goes on and on. I was overwhelmed as I simply scanned the scriptures referring to the fear of God. Verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born, this is to the Hebrews, you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. Now that is not how you and I would have ended this sweet story. God's blessing, His goodness, the people are growing. And now Pharaoh commands all of the Egyptians to murder the boys, to throw them into the Nile to be drowned to death. And we have no reason to believe that that isn't exactly what started happening in mass. Point number seven, sometimes it will get worse before it gets better. If and when things get worse before they get better, after we have chosen to fear God, remember that harder times do not nullify the prior six points. We still need to obey God. We must not give in to sin because times got harder. No matter what it might cost, because we know the real prize is yet to come. Harder times don't change the eternal prize. It doesn't matter how insignificant or little we think we are. Don't fall prey to the idea that no one is watching or no one cares or I don't make a difference. What if these midwives have believed those lies? The truth is God is still watching when times get harder for you and me. And He will bless he will be good because he has promised it. There is no trial so great that it voids the word of God. There is no circumstance so hard that it overcomes the promise of the Almighty.
But faith understands that such blessings, such goodnesses will not be measured fully by what we receive in this lifetime. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Here's another one of those passages where we wouldn't have written it that way. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 to 16, speaking of several of the all-time greatest testimonies of grace and faith, it says this, all these died in faith without receiving the promises. Chew on that. The greatest testimonies of grace and faith died without receiving the promises. As we're going to see, that's why they were the greatest testimonies of grace and faith. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And if indeed, it, and indeed if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. Don't look back, right? Verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Not just a mansion, a city. True faith isn't banking on a beautiful, peaceful, stress-free house in Gig Harbor. It's expecting much more than that. The fear of the Lord, as proven through true faith, recognizes that we are foreigners on this earth. God promises, God's promises will not all be fulfilled this side of glory. Some of them, yes. All of them, no. There will be trials and persecutions, maybe even to the death. We can't say we weren't warned. But the best is yet to come. Praise God, our mansion isn't subject to Pierce County building codes. We're not waiting for a permit. Our permit has already been granted, amen? It was stamped with the blood of Jesus Christ. The wrath of God has been satisfied. That is the suffering that we should fear. And now we have no fear of such wrath. Our sins have been forgiven. The promises of God have become ours. We desire a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called our God. Ponder that. He is proud to be called your God when you fear Him. For He is prepared a city for us. The person who fears the Lord knows and believes these biblical truths, and such fear results in obedience in the here and now. God give us a biblical, healthy, uncompromising, confident fear of Him like these two women had in Exodus 1. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we marvel at the grace of God that enabled two 
humble women to stand up to the wicked ruler of Egypt. If you can do that for them, you can do that for us. And you do. God, help us to have a reverential, submissive, awestruck fear of you. One who recognizes, a fear that recognizes that you are the only Almighty. It was you who, with the word of your mouth, spoke the universe into existence. There is no God like unto you. Help us to live according to these truths. Remind us often that you are and will always be the sovereign one. Our circumstances are not out of your control. God, use our circumstances to drive us to fear you, both the blessings and the sorrows. Help us by your grace, because apart from your grace, we cannot do it. Help us to find rest and peace and joy in the fear of the Lord. We love you because you loved us first. We're humbled that you are proud to be called our God. You are not ashamed. Oh Lord, by your grace, by the name of your Son and his blood, his resurrected life, we make you proud. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.